This is an ABC podcast. Psychics, mediums and astrologers. People tend to feel strongly one way or the other about them. Gary Nunn and his sister Taryn had very different attitudes. Taryn visited mediums and psychics. She even believed in mermaids. While Gary is a journalist and he was pretty sceptical about the whole spirit world. Dead was dead and no one had a secret portal into the future. Despite their differences, Gary and Taryn were always close, living together with their dad after their parents' marriage broke up. But after their beloved dad died, grief did something funny to the way both Gary and his sister thought about what was real and what wasn't. Gary embarked on a two-year investigation into people who say they can predict the future or speak with the dead. And Gary met many lonely, heartbroken people, some who were left more distressed by their interaction with psychics, but others who found there a particular kind of comfort. His book is The Psychic Tests. Hi, Gary. Hi, great to talk to you. I want to start with the court case you covered that got you thinking differently about psychics and who consulted them. Who is Naveen Rottinger and why was she in the witness box? Naveen Rottinger is a psychic and she was in the witness box because the chairman of Australia's biggest stockbroking firm, BBY, had hired her and he'd paid Naveen to advise him on where to invest his stocks and shares, um, but also on who to hire and even who to fire, all based on her psychic advice. So she would say, the spirits are saying, Sarah's not going to perform very well next month, so can you please find a way of firing her? And that's what he did, and that's how he ran the stockbroking firm, Australia's biggest, for four years. And was this known, Gary, or was this something that that CEO kept pretty close to his chest? He kept it very close to his chest. None of this came out until the liquidator's report because it didn't go very well. It collapsed in 2016, and it was the biggest stockbroking firm collapse since the global financial crisis. And that's when it all came out. There, there had been a couple of people in BBY who had known about it. The chief executive officer had known about it. And when, when Glenn Rosewall, who was the chairman of BBY, who had hired the psychic, he was put on the dock for corporate mismanagement and Naveen was called into court. So she, she walked into this courtroom and everyone's jaw dropped because a liquidator's report is quite a dull scene usually. I mean, it's quite dramatic because of the amount of money that was lost, $61 million owed to clients, all because Glenn had invested this money according to Naveen's psychic advice. So she was brought in and um, and she revealed all. And it really struck me, that story, because it, it gave me a new hunch. So I'd previously kind of viewed psychics as little more than entertainers. And my sister, Taryn, was really into psychics. And I'd kind of mocked her about it. I'd kind of poked fun at her about it. And, and it formed part of our banter as brother and sister. Um, and, I, and I kind of thought the people that seek out psychics are like my sister. Um, so, you know, I, I guess... Uh, naive in some ways, um, sometimes a little bit vulnerable. Um, and, I, and I think I probably th made some value judgments on them. I thought probably thought they were a bit gullible and even a bit foolish to enter this realm. But I didn't really think that they would take them too seriously. Um, I hadn't really given that much thought. And it hadn't occurred to me that the people that seek out psychic advice and, and take that counsel seriously could be like Glenn Rosewall, which is authoritative, responsible, responsible for millions of dollars and hundreds of staff. And the decisions that he is taking affect so many people. And that's where the journey began. Did he say why, Gary? Like what had made a, a chairman of a stockbroking firm turn to a psychic? That is such a good question, Sarah. Why? And no, I mean, he didn't respond to my requests for interview. And during the liquidator's report, he didn't say very much about why. We can only really speculate as to why. And I, I do have a hunch. 
And I think it could be a form of imposter syndrome. Whether you're a world leader, a chief executive, or a police investigator, you are someone who holds a lot of responsibility and a lot of power. I think it can be quite uncomfortable for people, even if they've earned their way there and they have the right experience and qualifications. I think that you get to the position where there is n you've got juggernaut decisions to make that will impact thousands. And there is no one above you other than the divine. And sometimes that is left wanting. In newsflash, God doesn't always answer prayers. So I think that there's this alternative realm that, that feels very seductive, where having gone to see many psychics myself on this journey and mediums, etc., your ego is stroked. Your your fears are listened to and you feel heard. Your your anxieties are listened to and also you you have this sense of no longer needing to dwell in uncertainty because some of them give you they convince you they're very charismatic they're very convincing and they convince you that they have all the answers and they can reassure you things are going to be okay and as we saw in this case that is that's just not true you paid yourself for a consultation with Naveen what what did she advise you in in your one-on-one -on -one with this psychic to the world of stockbroking well she wasn't very accurate for a start she kept telling me that where was the best place to buy an investment property and I thought well she obviously doesn't know I'm a struggling writer <laughs> and the spirits haven't told her how much writers earn which is not much so yeah that was immediately I kind of started to zone out she was one of the less charismatic ones that I saw as well not to be too rude about her because you know she I, I honestly think like most psychics, because I spent some time with the Australian skeptics as well and to try and find out. And they're a group of people who can give you lots of insights into psychics because they follow them around and they dedicate their lives trying to debunk them. And they told me, look, we think most psychics do believe in themselves. Psychics like Naveen, they, they do believe in themselves. And there are a few that are charlatans and they know that they're con artists and they are scamming people out of their money and at times when they're very vulnerable but there are many many others and and uh, one guy from the australian skeptics suggested that at least 80 percent of psychics that he's met believe in themselves and and i and it, and it kind of gave me this new idea about um a bunch of different tests because we focused on this one test um, and that test is is this true? Can psychics see into the future and can mediums speak to the dead? But because we've fixated so much on, on those tests, it's almost, it's almost like the most boring question to ask because if, if you come at this from a, from a skeptic's point of view and that's where your starting place is, it closes down the conversation and you dismiss everyone as foolish and gullible like I did and you don't explore some of the value in this world. And and, and that's when I started to wonder if psychics believed in themselves. And I realized that probably some of them are slightly deluded. And I, I kind of realized that delusion is always more forgivable than deceit. And there's both things in this world. They, they both exist. But then, but then suddenly that opened a new door and made me think, okay, maybe there are some that just like priests, let's be honest and and anyone in religious orders who equally believe in supernatural miracles, we, we're not quite so rude about them. We, we give them a lot of gravitas. We, uh, for a long time in Britain, gave them seats in the House of Lords. In Australia, we give them tax breaks to run huge influential organisations and, I say, over public policy all for people of faith who believe in supernatural miracles. Now, to me, there is no difference between the supernatural miracles that they believe in and the supernatural miracles that someone who genuinely believes they have psychic abilities is claiming to have. And yet one cohort has a huge amount of gravitas and the other is kind of derided and laughed at. And, and that's where I started on that journey. And, and, and it made me want to explore more about faith and connection and power. As you say, acceptance of religious Christian belief is is almost a requirement. Well, is a requirement, I think, of being a, a president in the States. Have other presidents been influenced by, let's say, less mainstream beliefs about 
the supernatural. Yes, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan's name comes up every time you think about that. It started with his wife, Nancy Reagan, and there was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan's life in his first term of the presidency. And what that made me realise when, when Nancy then hired a psychic was it doesn't matter how powerful you are, even the most powerful couple in the world are still susceptible to being crippled by their own fear and need for reassurance. And she was terrified that her husband was going to be killed with good reason. So she hired a psychic called Joan Quigley and began to ask her when it was safe to, for Ronald Reagan to leave the house. It was all done in secret. Psychic Joan was paid through a third party. Initially, Ronald and Nancy Reagan denied that, that she had much of a say at all over their lives. Then Psychic Joan released her own book, which, as lots of psychics do, claimed quite a lot of things and, uh, and some of them probably a bit spurious. But the thing that really got me intrigued in this story was that I then looked into Ronald Reagan's chief of staff, who was called Donald Reagan. And he had released a book and he said literally every major decision that Ronald Reagan um, had to take was informed by Psychic Joan. So Air Force One could not take off until Psychic Joan had cleared the time. Ronald Reagan could not address the nation until Psychic Joan had cleared the time. He couldn't uh, announce his re-election campaign, do a press conference, even, and this really shocked me, discussions with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, military interventions in Grenada and Libya all had to go via Psychic Joan Quigley. Extraordinary, although, again, that, that kind of double standard comes into this because you cannot get elected as an atheist in the US as president. And again, the double standard of, of the amount of credence that one form of supernatural belief has over the other um, really, really intrigues me. Presidents, perhaps with the exception of Donald Trump or, or world leaders, would think that this is something they have to have to hide from the public, that they're consulting psychics or, or astrological charts. But astrology, at, at least for the rest of us, is now pretty okay. It's pretty mainstream. I guess I should have asked you this at the beginning, Gary. What star sign are you? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that eventually. Well, I'm a Libra. And interestingly enough, again, this started on a micro level before I took it to the, the macro level. On a micro personal level, I discovered that a former manager of mine recruits into her team based on star sign fit. And she confessed that to me. This is not in HR protocol that I'm aware of, Gary, <laughs> that you have to fit a star sign checklist. It's definitely not. But you do put your date of birth on your CV. So that information is available for people to do what they want with. Now, what she said, let me just let me just represent her accurately here. Because at first I was thinking, would she ever have hired me if I wasn't a Libra? We worked together in a major children's charity in the UK. And she said she would only recruit on star sign fit um, and compatibility with the rest of the star signs in her team if she had two candidates of equal ability and experience and couldn't choose between the two and the star sign would be the deciding factor. Now, I must say, I still find that incredible. Well, Richard Feidler and I are both Scorpios, so maybe that's why we're in the role that we're in, I guess, Gary. We should, <laughs> this might be the explanation. But it, it's, I wonder if when people, given how common it is for people to talk about star signs and read horoscopes in newspapers or online, is it supernatural belief or is it more like a kind of psychological shorthand that people use with one another? I mean, even if people are talking about star signs, with the exception of some people like your former manager, do most of us really believe it? Is that what you came across? Is it real belief in astrology or a kind of psychological version of a psychological quiz? It's both. So, you know, a lot, a lot of magazines and newspapers still include horoscopes and they are the only page in newspapers that are not fact-checked 
by sub-editors. And initially, when I started the journey, I just thought, well, nobody takes that very seriously. They are, that's a, a form of levity um, because there's so much bad news. You know, everyone knows for a news, newspaper editor, if it bleeds, it leads. We, we have bad news and that's what makes news. And, and this is a bit of an antidote to that. But then I discovered that people do take it seriously. So psychics and astrologers, they can have an impact on who will date you, who will hire you, and even who will fire you. Another woman I interviewed on the journey, um, she got hooked onto psychic phone lines and spent thousands of pounds. She's in the UK. Thousands of pounds constantly phoning psychic phone lines. Every time there was a minor enough grievance in her life, she said to me that she kept ringing them just if she'd had an argument with a boyfriend, for example, and got completely hooked on them. Uh, her name was Seiko and she's Japanese and she told me in Japan it's based on blood group. So she'd previously gone to an interview and the someone on the recruiting panel had been Japanese and had asked her what her blood group was. And they, there is a form of belief very parallel to horoscopes and star signs and astrology in Japan that um, your blood group your blood group denotes your compatibility with others and certain personality traits. But then I looked into this a little bit more deeply and I discovered something called the Barnum effect. It's called the Barnum effect because um, it's named after Barnum, the greatest showman, and he was a master of manipulation and there was something for everyone. And that's important because when it comes to especially horoscopes, they are very, very cleverly phrased. Um, often I discovered by people who have no astrology experience whatsoever. Um, often they were people that were handed a book. They were journalists and good writers who were handed a book on astrology and told to get on with it. Yeah, when did it start? How did astrology columns and, and star signs first begin appearing in newspapers? There was a member of the royal family who was about to be born. A, a new princess was going to be born in the British royal family. And a tabloid ran a story saying what do the stars foretell for the princess's life and it did really really well and initially you know it was very popular it was very popular with readers good reader feedback and initially it was something that you just find in tabloid newspapers in britain um but it did start to creep into the more august broadsheets like the times what's really remarkable is that NASA, a couple of times, has told us that there were not 12 star signs, there were 13, which puts all of the star signs out. So you are not actually a Scorpio, Sarah. I have to tell you, no more than I am a Libra. <laughs> That's just you as a Libra desperate to knock me off the Scorpio <laughs> throne. Well, it won't work, Gary. So, but people in their 20s and younger aren't likely to be reading newspapers. Where do, do young people go for their astrological guidance? They're going to the apps. The apps are hugely popular. So the younger generation, what's really interesting about them is they are not, as I considered that they might have been, um, they're not flat earthers. They're not anti-vaxxers. Um, they are pro-science. They're pro-climate change action. They're pro-vaccination. And yet they also indulge this pseudoscience. And I was trying to understand, is it ironic? That, is, it, is it a form of irony or do they genuinely believe it's true? And the one of the answers to that question is um was taught to me by an ex astrologer an ex tarot card reader called Felicity Carter and she used to give readings down in the rocks in Sydney um and she said she'd give readings because it's close to parliament on Macquarie Street the New South Wales State Parliament and also to the stockbroking firm she'd give readings to very powerful people and she has since revoked it all and said it was all Barnum statements. It was um, mixing around metaphors on the page, and um, she made it all up, basically. But one of the things that she told me that really intrigued me and gave me an insight into why young people love this stuff, some young people, is there's kind of a disillusionment with capitalism and where it's led us. And also there's um, a form... This is a form of spirituality, a, a spiritual realm in which... Those who've been shut out by the conservative doctrines of major organised religions are able to empower themselves and feel included. And that particularly applies to women. Women are shut out from the hierarchies and positions of authority in so many major religions. They are not allowed to preach from the pulpit. And the same goes for queer people. 
And those that I spoke to who are into this stuff said it's, it's a way, it's a spiritual way that we can empower ourselves and feel heard and feel seen and not feel excluded. Your sister, Taryn, when did she first visit a psychic? How old was she? Oh, she was young. She told me she's seen more than 10 in her life. And um, initially it was something that I think, well, at first I didn't really take it very seriously. So I wasn't really sure what she was going in and asking. I remember once that um, she invited me and my cousin Shelley and the three of us were brought up like brother and sisters. We'd said to Taryn, what do you want for your birthday? And she said, I want you both to accompany me to see a psychic. And I now see that differently. Now, I now see that that was a way of um, a, a window into her world that I'd been so dismissive of. And when we were there and each person was getting their reading and, and the other two were in the room next door, we'd be giggling and we'd be saying, what are you going to ask her about? Are you can ask her about your love life or your career. And it was this way of bonding. It was a form of bonding. And it was and it was a invitation to explore our futures and that's probably something we didn't talk about much outside of this woman's house who was giving us the readings. What early memories do you have of, of Taryn? What was she like as a kid when you two were growing up? Taryn was quiet and she was in her own head. She used to love playing with her Barbies um, and I was pretty boisterous. She often tells the story about how I came in, de- decapitated them all once and then told mum that she had done it and made her clean up the mess which is makes me sound awful and I feel like I've spent <laughs> most of my adult life atoning for that um she loved mermaids she still loves mermaids she she loved to dream and uh, I think she was a bit of a daydreamer and I remember one story actually that really kind of highlights the difference between the two of us because we are quite different I'm the older brother, so I quickly figured out that there was no such thing as Santa Claus. I was infinitely curious and also probably a bit precocious, and I'd, I'd figured out there was no Father Christmas. And my parents made me promise that I wouldn't tell my younger sister, and they were they were super worried that I was going to sort of blow their cover. And I went completely the other way, so I'd really exaggerated like everything about Father Christmas, and I dreamed up this entire world for him and told Taryn that that was true which which made her more convinced than ever that he was true for longer than you know she was older than me when she realized that that, that's not true but it also gave me an insight into I'd I'd worn this label as a skeptic so so heavily and and I'd, I'd allowed it to define me that sometimes you do miss out on that that bit of magic and I think that's what I'd done as a young boy as well like sometimes when you suspend your disbelief you can enter this mystical realm and there is a levity to it and there's a sense of excitement to it and I think that if you are this dour questioning skeptic you you sometimes miss out on that. What were things like between your mum and dad when you were a kid Gary? I know that um, my Mum always knew that I was someone who loved to tell stories and both her and dad knew that. And um, they sometimes told me to let my sister get a word in edgeways, (laughs) you know, so she could be heard as well. And I think I was a young kid, so I didn't always understand, but I, I know that they urged me to be, urged me to be a little bit more gentle with her. And I think probably that's how this played out when we started to go and see psychics together. It was a way that Taryn could feel heard and could um, indulge her dreams and, and ideas about her future. So yeah, they really have allowed us to, to get closer as siblings, I think. And after your, your mum and dad split up, why did you and Taryn stay with your dad? That's just the way it worked out, really. Taryn was always very um, close to my dad. She was kind of a daddy's girl. But we were still really close to my mum. My mum still played a really important part of our lives. What were things like living with your dad as as kids? What kind of single dad was he to you and Taryn? Oh, he was really hardworking. He worked as a nightclub bouncer, actually. And um, he had two jobs. So he worked as a nightclub bouncer. 
Um, so sometimes he would, we had his stories when I was in sixth form college that he had um, barred entry to some of my um, fellow college students <laughs> from the nightclub because he knew they were underage. <laughs> He also worked uh, as a, he did some technical drawings in, a, in um, as a technical engineer. Um, so yeah, he worked really hard and so did my mum. They both worked and they always were trying to encourage Taryn's confidence. Mine needed no encouraging, <laughs> probably a bit of discouraging sometimes they would say now. And that's, Taryn found her confidence through swimming because there was this one family holiday where I was young and um, had jumped in the pool when I promised my mum I wouldn't and couldn't swim and proceeded to drown. She had to pull me out with all my clothes on and she saved my life. When we got home, we were both put into swimming lessons. I learned how to swim quite quickly and got bored and gave up. My sister excelled and that's where she became the Little Mermaid. So she represented our county. My dad would take her to swimming meetups three times a week and she was excellent. So she does, she, she could do the butterfly, the 50 meters butterfly like nobody I've ever seen gliding across the pool. And that's really, that's what I say. It's how the Little Mermaid found her voice through the pool, through swimming. And my, my love was always words and stories. Taryn's love was the pool and swimming and magic. Podcast. Broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. What was happening with your dad, Gary, after you and, and your sister, Taryn, moved out of home? Uh, I think dad, uh, and probably like any parent, um, went through a form of empty nester syndrome and, um, he just was plodding on with life and work. Um, and yeah, he, he died suddenly in 2015. Um, and that's the point when my sister, my sister's indulgence of mediums, um, grew darker and a bit more concerning for me because previously there'd been a levity and, and this time she was in grief, deep grief. We both were. And she was seeking out mediums constantly to try and reconnect her with dad. And she genuinely believed in during that time they that dad was in the room. So at this point I stopped laughing about it and I stopped poking fun at it because it became something... I became concerned that the mediums were suspending her in the denial or bargaining stage of grief because dad wasn't dead the whole time she was sat in a room with a medium who was saying he's here. What do you want to say to him? And when someone dies suddenly, there there are a bunch of questions that will forever remain unanswered. And it's really difficult sometimes to dwell in uncertainty. Some things you will never know and must remain unknown. And what I felt like Taryn really needed was a grief counsellor who was going to say to her, he's gone, he's never coming back, and that's going to really hurt. But here are the psychological tools that you can use to help you deal with that. But she wasn't doing that. She was going back again and again and again and, um, and felt like these mediums were connecting her to dad and and on the journey i i realized that grief is a big reason that people seek out um mediums you know i on this journey i i went to some group mediumship sessions where a bunch of people sit in a room in front of someone purporting to be a medium and connecting them to their loved ones. And you'd look around the room and then there'd be so many tears in that room. There'd be so much darkness and trauma. And I really did struggle to decide whether this was helpful or not. And I did speak to some some grief, some trained accredited grief counsellors, and I was surprised because I expected them to say, this is a dangerous way of dealing with grief and it is an unhelpful way of dealing with grief. And they did say that, but they gave some caveats. And one of them, um, a, a, a trained accredited grief counsellor said to me, grief is so personal and everyone is the manager of their own grief. And if that, if they feel like that's helping them at that particular time to get through that particular traumatic period, 
then that might be okay. And I think it's all, it comes back to suspending your disbelief again. The shock sometimes envelops you from the trauma rushing in. And I think almost you, you, you just need to get through that most intense period of grief before you can actually move through those stages of grief when you come through to you come through to acceptance. You have a you have a good friend who also turned to a medium after the death of a loved one. Tell me about Michael. Michael's a really good friend of mine and he's now thankfully moved around the corner from me because he was going through a really intense time. Um I was friends with him and his husband and his husband died suddenly. He was only 40. And they had not long been married. I went to their wedding. It was one of the first same-sex weddings I ever went to. It was a joyous occasion. And one of our mutual best friends was the MC. And um, I actually think it was one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> it wasn't even my wedding. And um, he, his husband's death threw us all into shock. And then threw Michael into a very intense period of grief that was really concerning. And, and actually we were dealing with our own grief, but then there's this almost grief by osmosis that we were grieving for him too, because the Michael that we'd known, the fun loving Michael was not no longer with us. Part of him died that day too. So no one really gives you the tools to figure out how, the right things to say or what to do. And we were scrambling in our grief and then lockdown happened the first lockdown and he was completely alone in the house that they'd once shared and he was devastated he decided that he would seek out a medium i was concerned um, because i know that there is a lot of charlatanism in this world and i still really hadn't landed at a place where i was comfortable with him doing that but i also couldn't stop him and I, and I heard that grief counsellor's words in my ears. Everyone's grief. Everyone is the manager of their own grief. Each grief is personal. And um, he phoned me immediately afterwards to tell me what had been said. And one of the really lovely things that the medium had said was he should lay, the ta lay a place at the table because Michael had been packing away bits of the house and not knowing what to do with the personal possessions. And she'd said, lay him a place at the table so that he's always at your dinner table. And that just felt like such a lovely um, flourish and a lovely, a lovely uh, thing to do to remember our friend that I would never have thought of. And I'm not sure if a grief counselor would have necessarily done either. Um, but the really poignant thing that happened was that she I, this is the thing. I, I think that these people have, I think they are gifted, but I think their gift is very human. I think it is breakneck intuition. I think it is hyper perception. And that can often be done through facial cues and body language and those kind of things. She'd said to Michael that I feel like you've been wanting to join him, implying that he wanted to end his own life. And Michael agreed was the place where he was at on that day, which was really hard to hear because right? I didn't know that. I knew he was really down and he was devastated, but I didn't know that. And I guess it was, and I guess, again, it was a way of him telling me. It was a way of him expressing that to me through this conduit that, that perhaps made it a little bit easier to say and a little bit easier for me to deal with. And she said the most wonderful thing to him. She said, um, he doesn't want you to. You have to, you have to stay with us because you, there is, there is meaning in your life that's going to emerge from this and there is a reason for you to stay on earth and you're going to find it. Now, whether I believe that she was talking to my dead friend or not, it doesn't matter. I don't think because she, she created for him a space to be vulnerable and to confess something very difficult. He did also have a psychologist and a, a grief counsellor at the time, but I think it kind of went hand in hand and she told him things that a grief counsellor could not. And um, I honestly think, uh, because he's told me, that um, it was those words that, that 
and kept him with us that day. And there can be a different kind of intimacy from a from a psychic because there aren't those professional boundaries for, for good and for bad that are there with a psychologist or a counsellor. There can be physical touch, there can be checking in messages, there can be reassurances and, and that's a very different thing than, than we get when we go and visit a, a psychologist most of the time. I st- I'm still, it still concerns me that people would see a medium or a psychic before they'd see a counsellor. I'll never, I'll never move from that place. But you're right. There's a, there's a distance. You know, I heard a, I heard a story about a woman who um, got a hug from her, her birth chart astrologer afterwards saying, can I give you a hug? And she said it was the first time someone had hugged her in a long time. And it reminded me actually of there's a, there's a point when I had my um, past life portrait painted and um, it was quite funny. I quite fancied him, um, which was weird. <laughs> and um, but, but in order to, to paint my past life portrait, this woman, Wendy, she had to hold my hand and it wasn't a palm reading. She just held my hand. She just held it. And there is an intimacy that comes from someone holding your hands. Endorphins rushed and gave me tingles down my spine and it was the first time someone had held my hand in a long time and a counsellor cannot and will not and should not do that but without that distance that is appropriate with a counsellor there was there was this feeling that I was no longer alone and um, and even though I don't didn't believe at all that that I have a past life, let alone that this hot man was my past <laughs> life. I, I was, I did feel, um, in a word, connected. So Michael had a good experience. You speak to other people who've had good experiences when they've turned to mediums or psychics in grief. But of course, that's, that's not the universal case. Sylvia Brown is the anti-heroine, in a way, of the story that you tell. Gary, who's Sylvia Brown and, and what kind of influence has she had on people's lives? I will go as far to say that she is the villain of this story, the late Sylvia Brown. So, Sylvia Brown was hired by the Montel Williams show in the US, claimed to be a psychic, a psychic medium, and she... The, the parents of missing children would come on to the Montel Williams show, crestfallen and desperate. And they'd walk down the steps to the microphone and they'd ask Sylvia where their missing child was. And you could see in their face utter desperation. And I watched many of those clips. And the one that struck me and has stayed with me the most is the mother of Amanda Berry. Amanda Berry had gone missing. She was a teenager and the police and the media had, had, had been on the hunt for her and there had been no leads. It had been over a year, I think a year and a half since she'd been missing. And Amanda Berry's mother asked Sylvia Brown where she was live on TV. And Sylvia Brown instantly said, she's dead. She's gone. Her words were, she's gone, honey. She's not the type of girl that wouldn't have called you. She's gone. You'll see her on the other side. And you see Amanda's mum, you see her face crumple. And she then went home that night and she packed away all of Amanda's belongings from her bedroom. She no longer bought Amanda a birthday present that year or a Christmas present. And I, I did a bit of research and a bit of digging and and discovered several sources who said that this was the point at which she started to give up hope. And this is the point at which Amanda's mum started to experience ill health. She died six months after of a heart attack. Amanda Berry was not dead. Sylvia Brown was wrong. Amanda Berry the entire time was alive, is still alive. Um, She was found in the basement of Ariel Castro. She'd been held captive there for 10 years. And as you can imagine, one of the first things she asked when she was finally freed was, where's my mum? And her mum had died of a broken heart after a psychic medium had given her phony grief. 
this woman being able to look into the face of a grief-stricken parent and so sort of casually say your child's dead, you know, move on. It's it's so brutal. It's so astonishing. Do you think that she believed it? Was she one of those psychics who genuinely believed she was somehow being connected with a with a greater truth or was was this all just just a stick? I do not think she believed it, which makes it so much darker. And and after I'd researched her and the phony predictions that she made and the things she said, I felt like I needed to take about seven showers afterwards. Her, her ex-husband, one of her ex-husbands, Gary, had said that he had once said to her, Sylvia, you, you know you don't believe in this stuff. Why do you Why do you keep making all these predictions and when you know it's not true. And she said, anyone who believes in this crap should be taken. And in another interview I watched, she called people goofs, um, the goofs who rush in. She is one of the minority of these psychic mediums who is a complete con artist. And the damage that she's caused is just astounding when you think about it. And this is what, this is what I come back to when people say, oh, aren't they harmless? No, they are not. How did you learn that that police sometimes consult psychics? I did a freedom of information request on the New South Wales Police Force and asked them how often they'd been using psychics. And the result of that request that was that um, between the years of 2003 and 2019, psychics were used by the New South Wales Police Force 19 times, at least 19 times. And the caveat of the request was that uh, it could be considerably more. Um, so at least 19 so times. So what is going on there, Gary? Were you completely shocked by that? I had no idea that the police would consult a psychic or a medium. What's happening? Flabbergasted. This is public money being spent on pseudoscience. Public money because police are expending their time by speaking to these psychics they are also sometimes paying their expenses so i did a bit more digging um just to back up because that's just a number right so we don't really know whether that was a, a murder investigation which usually it is or a missing person investigation um i discovered that victorian detective sergeant colin mclaren said today any detective at the top of the game top of their game will have highly credentialed psychics in their kit bag alongside forensics, fingerprints and DNA. I then discovered that there is a psychic called Debbie Malone who has written an entire book on all of the police cases that she claims to be helping on. This comes from former detective senior constable Jeffrey Little um, who investigated the murder of Southern Highlands woman Maria Scott and um, he contacted Debbie after seeing her on a TV series which showed psychics working on unsolved cases. And in 2009, he said, um, while the New South Wales police didn't pay for Debbie's services, they did pay her expenses. He said, and I quote, one of my superiors told me not to use Malone's services, but I ran it past everyone working on the case and they were happy to go ahead with it. And how do you make sense of that? It's partly that there are believers in the police. You know, we live in a country where our prime minister, um, upon winning the election, stood up and said, I've always believed in miracles. There are people in very professional, high up positions who believe in, in miracles and supernatural things. So partly because there are believers in the police. Um, another reason I discovered was that um, occasionally someone has murdered someone and the murderer wants to either play psychological games or absolve themselves of the crushing guilt that they are feeling and may phone up and make a coded confession pretending to be a psychic, knowing something about the case. So sometimes they take it seriously in case it's a, a basically a psychopath. Mm. Uh, but also I think, again, it comes to when, when you've got a case that's run cold and there's no more leads and you are desperate to help this grieving family, you will do anything and you'll entertain anyone. But I still think that the fact that public money is being spent on pseudoscience is pretty extraordinary. I mean, it happened as well with the, the Madeleine McCann case. When Madeleine McCann went missing, 1,000 psychics contacted that family and said they knew where her daughter was. It got so out of hand that the family had to hire someone to deal with them all. And that was his job to deal with the media and to deal with the psychics. It was his full-time job. And this is the thing that really, again, I, I spent a lot of 
a lot of the time shocked on this journey. A psychic phoned up Leicestershire police in the UK and said, I know where Madeleine McCann is. Her body is in a farm in Seville in Spain. So Leicestershire police got on the phone to the Spanish police and um, the Spanish police went and kicked some doors down on farms in Seville based solely on this psychic. You use the term the belief horseshoe. Gary, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a that's a phrase that I um, I coined to describe where people sit on the believer skeptics spectrum. The Australian skeptics and I spent some time with them on on this journey. And let me tell you, they're just as eccentric as the psychics. They spend their lives kind of like taking trains out to RSLs and watching psychic shows and trying to encourage audience members to ask serious questions about whether or not. This stuff is actually true and based on evidence and reason. They have their own media. They've got magazine and podcasts. Um, their bet noirs are sort of crystal healers, psychics, mediums, naturopaths, homeopaths. They are desperate for analytical skills to be taught um, more robustly and more widely in schools because we live in a world where misinformation is dangerous we're going through a time where it is deadly and what the skeptics say is if we get young people to sharpen their analytical skills they will be able to sniff a rat much quicker but the um the the skeptics are a bit aggrieved that the the, the term skeptic has become co-opted and people are now saying well i'm a climate change skeptic or i am a vaccine skeptic they hate that because they want skeptic to stand for reason and evidence and facts but what i say on the horseshoe of belief is if you are a skeptic about everything you are a conspiracy theorist and you 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 question everything whereas if you're a believer you have ultimate faith you have absolute faith and you question nothing so a lot of us kind of sit in between and we sit so far in our echo chambers and our filter bubbles and i wanted to burst those because i had worn my identity so firmly as a skeptic that i hadn't listened to believers like my sister i hadn't heard them i'd been i'd been pretty condescending and supercilious towards them and sometimes with good reason when you when you look at some of the things that they purport to be able to do but when i did start to listen to them there was so much more bonding and there was so much more empathy and we live in a world that is so divided and we love to label ourselves and when you look past those labels you can actually hear people and try and understand where they're coming from and i think that comes down to today you know if someone says that they're an anti-vaxxer they are demonized and and we are very very fearful of them and we don't and we mock them what i actually think we need to do is to try and understand where they're coming from and let's try and find out how we can get them to be led by science and evidence and reason which is you know m- the majority of people think is a good thing psychics included i have to say you know many psychics um, and their believers are double vaxxed and pro-vaccination how do you and taryn talk about your dad together now i think that we we talk about him as a good dad very dedicated um he he would have i know for a fact that he would have um been very dismissive of um of this world although i think i can imagine having a conversation with my dad about the world leaders like ronald reagan and also hitler who hired a jewish astrologer by the way to advise him on his rise to power i know my dad would have found those kind of things fascinating um the interesting thing is since we went on this journey together we kind of step into each other's worlds a bit so in the same way that I kind of started to hear my sister, she also started to hear me in a way that she hadn't before. And by stepping into my world, she did actually hire a grief counsellor. Um, only after incessantly, you know, seeing lots of different mediums and it, it's not something that happened overnight. She hired one and um, she told me that it was really, really helpful. and And it's helped her to process the grief you know grief is something you never get over it lives in you it changes you and she's allowed herself to change into that grief through the help of a grief counsellor and she hasn't seen a medium since 
And what about you, Gary? Have you made any changes to the way you live uh, after meeting all of the mediums and, and psychics that, that you went and met? Yes. I've been less dismissive of whether it's someone is a person of faith or someone has a belief in psychics. I've, I've listened more and I've, I've been able to bear witness to people at their, their most vulnerable at a time of extreme grief or despair and trauma. And it's brought me closer to not just my sister, but some friends and they know who they are. And they have opened up about things that they, I didn't even know about. They've told me things that I didn't even realize as their friends. It's allowed us to go deeper. And I think that's a very, I think that's a very human thing. Cause I think what it comes down to is things don't need to be true for you to find truth. And that is why we read fiction. And that is why we watch films. Um, and, and it comes down to this world. I, I know I don't believe it to be true, but I do believe you can find some truth. And I think that they can reflect back at you some areas of your life and some areas of your friends' lives that you may not discuss too readily around the dinner table. And suddenly those, those taboo subjects are on the plate and it gets people to maybe talk about things that they were a bit scared to because it shows them being vulnerable and it, and, and it maybe shows it what they perceive to be weakness. And what it ultimately does is it creates intimacy and connection. So, yeah, it's changed me. And, uh, you know, I can hold both things in my head, both, both evidence and reason and fact, which I'll never deviate from. But also whatever helps you to connect and get deeper with your friends and your family isn't always a bad thing. Gary, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.